we do a lot of fun stuff of Euroclear. I think all that we do is fun in different domains. So if I'm sitting somewhere in a large institution which needs funding, and on the other side of somebody that requires funding, we help connect the dots and ensure that this process works in an efficient way. Cloud forces you, first of all, to make choices. So do I need five applications to do the same thing? I can just have one. And then in the process of migrating, do I kill something which I knew I wanted to do everywhere, but I didn't take the time. So cloud becomes like a trigger to do some rationalization applications. Technology people tend to be very focused on the what you do things, the process, the step, the engineering part. And sometimes lose track about the end state of what you want to reach. So I see part of my role actually to connecting those dots saying, okay, you see what you do? Yeah, but the bigger picture is, this is why there's a problem out there that they want us to do. What we want to see as outcomes, they use the thing we have built. This is here on TV. My name is Hendrik Deckers. I'm here today with Antonio Queiroz, who is the Chief Digital Officer at Euroclear. A very warm welcome, Antonio. Thank you, Hendrik, for that. Antonio, I have a Master in History from the Université Bordeaux Montaigne, uh, a Master of Finance and Marketing from Catch Business School, and an Executive Master in Corporate and Market Finance from Science Paul. Uh, you worked for BNP for 10 years, mm -hmm. and in 2018, you joined Euroclear. So, Antonio, Tell us a little bit more. Who are you really? What's your background? Where are you from? And how did you end in uh, this arrive in this position? So, so I'm Portuguese, mm -hmm. but I've been living out of France now for the last 25 years. Okay. I was born and raised there. I did part of my studies in Portugal. Then I met my wife, and that led to uh, me moving around uh -huh. a, a little bit. I always did several things. So I was always interested in history and other stuff. So mm -hmm. IT or technology was always something I did. I think I started my first program number six or seven, so 82, 83, for those that remember the ZX Sinclair, that kind of devices, yeah. those are my toys. And all of my life, I always went <clears throat> between two things, trying to think about the past and what it should lead to, and that led to history, actually, mm -hmm. in my background, or making, having an impact on day-to-day -day life. And it was always the thing I was going back and forth. When I was 20-something, 1999, I was just Corners of my career say, do I continue to do history, which I was doing, okay. or do I become more active? Mm -hmm. And it was actually the boom of internet for those that mm -hmm. are old enough to remember. So the early stages of eBay, yep. Google, and I said, actually, I like this thing. And as, as, as I had an hobby, I was doing uh, my own website on history, my passion. I got approached by well, what was then a French startup called eBazaar, they got acquired then, say, could you help us? to bring our product live. In mm -hmm. And that led to uh, technology, and that led then to the rest of my career, where before BNP Paribas, I spent 10 years more as an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. okay. know, trying to build up companies or help companies to become now digital, and led the press to BNP Paribas, and then that we're up here today. Okay, super. So quite a diverse background yes. from history to the future of, uh, of, of IT uh, today. So, Antonio, your Chief Digital Officer at Euroclear, I think most people will have heard about Euroclear, but not necessarily they know what Euroclear uh, really does. So, so could you explain that, please? So I think that the best way to see Euroclear is as a connector of ecosystems. So we work mm -hmm. within the financial sector, and you can either see there's a very large notary or a large actor where we connect mm -hmm. the actors that actually need to invest somewhere and people that have excess liquidity. So our job mm -hmm. is to ensure that you connect these two dots of the equation, which is if I'm sitting somewhere in a large institution which 
needs funding, and on the other side of somebody that requires funding, we help connect the dots and ensure that this process works in an efficient way. It means yep. that in the end, well, this trust is part of it, it ensures that a transaction squares off and we sit in the middle of that to ensure that the balance is correct. Okay. And could you give us a, a little bit of numbers? How much money is going around? How many people oh. work there? I must, we must be talking about a lot of money, right? So that, that can give you a <laughs> bit of vertigo. So to give like just two figures uh, we usually use to try to, um, we don't want both people to give a sense about what we do. So we hold in our books around 36, 37 trillion of assets. Mm -hmm. So you take a one, you take 10 zeros, <laughs> and that gives you a sense about what we do. On a daily basis, our turnaround uh, is around 1.5, so 2 trillion assets wow. of euros. So, so we tend to measure things in, 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 in billions mm -hmm. rather than euros because we operate in a B2B space mm -hmm. where we connect very large corporate institutions, be it non private institutions or supranational financial companies. So the volume we process is at that scale. So if you want a metaphor from the tech world, we would like the Google of what we do in the sense mm -hmm. of data, mm -hmm. because we sit among these transactions and we are actually the register for that in the end. Yep. And how big is the organization in general? So overall, we're around 4,000, 4,500. Okay. When you consider everybody, we are pretty much Belgium-centered. So mm -hmm. a big part of our staff is in Belgium, but we have a very large footprint in, in France, in, in the UK, in the Nordic, Sweden, Finland. Yep. Over time, we built something in Poland, which okay. is, we're now also growing as an IT hub since this summer. And we work also with teams in India, which are part of our outsourcing package. But broadly, Europe, okay. Belgium being the center, and then we have a bit of workforce a bit everywhere on these countries. Yeah. And so your clients are the big financial and mid-size yes. all financial institutes? It tends to be all very the large institutions of the world, mm -hmm. you know, from very large financial institutions as banks to entities like the ECB, the regulators locally, and then asset managers a bit of everywhere. Yep. But we tend to, we focus only on B2B, just mm -hmm. to be clear, and it's going to be the largest companies you would see in the world, the 2,000, 4,000 ones that actually you know, make the ecosystem grow yep. as we go along. Okay. Is Euroclear a commercial organization or is it owned by, by its clients? How, what's the setup of that? Historically, we were client created and client governed. Okay. And that was when we were created in 1967, this was the history what we were created for. Mm -hmm. I mean, think uh, Marshall Plan, Rebuild of Europe, all that that made us you know, become what we are today, actually. And that over time, that evolved. Uh -huh. So our shareholder is still partly that, but we are more and more now uh, an investment where either local institutions, like in Belgium, the, the National Savant Fund invests, mm -hmm. and long-term investors tend to like us because okay. we provide a form of stability. and all that. So we are less of client-owned, client-governed, more of a normal, I would say, kind of like kind of financial holding with a bias towards long-term investors that mm -hmm. see us as, as an infrastructure which provides stable revenue, stable income, and is very you know, resilient in the way we do things. Okay, very clear. So, lots of money going around, very big corporates that you work with. Um, um, so that means that I can imagine your business is not a simple business. Can, I think that, I imagine it as a quite complex business. And that's what I want to talk a little bit today with you about about business and IT complexity and about business and IT agility and how they, we can reduce complexity, increase agility. So tell me a little bit about what the, the, cur uh, the, the main challenges are in, in your view and your clear around uh, the business in general and about complexity in the business today? Sure, sure. First of all, I, I like what you, because you call it complex and not complicated, mm -hmm. which I think is a big difference. So 
And what would be the difference for that? Something very complicated, it's very difficult to reproduce and to manage, mm -hmm. which we are not. We are very complex because we have this collection of things you need to do. So starting with settlement, which is basically doing plus and minuses and earning a balance, seems relatively <laughs> straightforward. And then on top of that, we have built services that help the industry to be more efficient. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to do asset servicing, which is basically doing something with a uh, transaction. And that's have evolved over time. So we were created with a relatively core business that has grown exponentially. So we were very good at settlement, we still are. And then we, we added businesses on top of that. It increases the number of clients we serve, the markets mm -hmm. we operate, the things they expect of us. And of course, then the IT landscape followed that. Yeah. Because we invested very early in technology, we have these collections of systems that still operate today relatively efficiently, mm -hmm. and we tend to add and not remove enough at the process, which I think we're going to talk, which is one of the things we, we want to get out of the cloud. Yeah. So we have this collection of countries and clients we serve mm -hmm. that continues to grow over time. And this is served by an IT landscape that we have built upon. So when yep. you combine the two, it is indeed relatively complex. Mm -hmm. I think what we're trying to do around that is actually, first of all, have a very clear view of the estate. So understanding where we are, our systems work, the data we process and it's used. And what we're building after that is what is a plan actually to modernize it and as we go along, knowing that our business is growing. So we have, we have the chance to be in a very you know, positive context of expansion and, mm -hmm. and creating new things and developing. So the trick for us is trying to manage that complexity as we go along, understand that we are growing our business yep. and adding things to it. And actually the cloud is part of that process of trying to move to something more standard mm -hmm. and use that as an opportunity sometimes to decommission things or to replace a set of solutions with one solution, for instance. Yep. That's the things we try to do, which I think first get very clear vision where we are, mm -hmm. what we have as business we want to run tomorrow and what is underlying in terms of infrastructure and technical setup, yep. application processes, and then have a plan <coughs> to consciously migrate and modernize, being mindful of the pace what we're to do. Mm -hmm. Not just because of us, but we operate in a complex market, so we need to consider also the First of all, our regulators mm -hmm. and the way they will perceive the pace of our change, and then our ecosystem, because our adoption cycle needs to be matched with the client's adoption. So they need to be ready to move with us in this yep. cycle. Okay. So what would you say would be the number one or, or, or the, the most important challenges in, on the business side that Euroclear has today? I think it's actually twofold, mm -hmm. which is, uh, and, and, and everybody will understand that's I mean, we had COVID recently, there's a lot of geopolitical tensions yep. across the world. It's trying to combine two things. So we need to continue to improve and to modernize what we do today as a core business mm -hmm. and make it more efficient overall. So addressing ways to manage these things to generate efficiencies overall. Mm -hmm. And you see cycles getting shorter, you see reactions needed to be more efficient. So anything that speeds up the way we react and adapt to what we have today. Yep. And that's one big axis of, of attention for us that leads to then IT investments on automation, on robotics, on AI, on cloud. Mm -hmm. And the second one, we see also a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of emerging problems mm -hmm. that require attention. So it's how we combine this modernizing the core with building new businesses and new capabilities. And it's not one or the other. Mm -hmm. It's finding the right balance between when you decide that it's the right moment to create something new because it makes sense. And we just recently announced something on the LT. Uh, last month yep. and continue to improve what we do, which is at, at the core of ecosystem and the, back, the value we bring to our clients. So yep. that's like a bit of the balancing that we have in yep. technology, which is 
going between one and the other. Yeah, so making sure that your current business is stable and secure and, and, and running fine and, and so on and so on. But at the same time, making sure that you invest in innovation. and, and Yes, uh, and not only stable and secure, it actually is growing because, again, yeah. we tend to be very tied with the way the GDP of the world grows. So mm -hmm. when the economy expands, we cannot follow that because we underpin that to a large extent. So not only it has to be stable, secure, resilient, safe, and we have more and more expectation that this works around, around the globe, Mm -hmm. But it's growing, so yep. we don't have like a stable set, which is good for us yep. and for our clients. Of this is the volumes we process today. Yep. The 37 trillions I mentioned are supposed to grow and to expand. Yep. So we need to cope with that kind of like positive context. While, as you said, invent new things, new businesses yep. that require very often new capabilities. Okay, so you need to grow the business. You need to innovate <coughs> in the business, come up with with, with new services for for clients uh, and so on, um, and that. That also needs to translate in IT strategy. Mm -hmm. so, so how would you describe the, the, um, the supporting IT strategy as a, as a whole to make sure that you support that growth and innovation? I think that the strategy we have is, is built about a few pillars mm -hmm. uh, on, 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 on what you want to do. So the first one I already mentioned is this idea that we need to modernize the core. Mm -hmm. So we very consciously decided to continue to invest on a series of technologies which are there since a uh, um, year, which are proven. And how do we ensure that as we go along, mm -hmm. we take these technologies and as much as possible, we try to move from bespoke ad hoc homemade solutions mm -hmm. to market products okay. and market solutions. So if something already exists that allows us to do a bit more of you know, payments, for instance, mm -hmm. could we actually leverage something that exists out of, uh, out of, out of the box? Yeah. Either because, again, in the multiple acronyms we would use, go to the cloud, some form of, of, of service we would buy. That's yep. like one thing to do, very disciplined, investing in our core systems that make us different and then yep. see this an opportunity to leverage uh, off-the-shelf off products that can help us just be efficient. Okay. Another one we have or on the strategy is in terms of, of sourcing and people. So IT is mm -hmm. a very people-intensive business, so which maybe doesn't always come across to people which are not in technology, but you're heading to that. And everybody's trying to find the same talent. Yep. <laughs> so what we're trying consciously to do is to work on our employer branding. Mm -hmm. So being sure in the markets we are, people understand what we do and the opportunity represents to work for us, yep. but also like to leverage our locations. And this mm -hmm. is where, for instance, or the fact we opened recently a branch in Poland, it's a way to try to say, how can we tap yep. the, the expertise of Belgium, France, UK, and yep. Poland, because we need to find these talents where they are. And Another thing which we try to do, so modernizing the tech, investing in people, yep. is also getting more and more business and IT proximity. Mm -hmm. and this idea of trying to um, reduce waste and generate efficiency, mm -hmm. how do we ensure we, write, we tackle the right problems in the right timing? And, and very often in, in organizations, uh, you have these tensions between what you would call business and technology. I think mm -hmm. these boundaries are getting blurrier as yep. we go along. So we are invest a lot of time on trying to be sure we have this alignment what these are things we want to do for the market, the problems we try to solve, and the people in tech contribute to that, yeah. both shaping the problem and shaping the solution that we put into place. Okay. So modernizing the core, making sure that you have the right uh, talents, and then aligning, making sure that business and IT work very close together because especially in your business, IT is the is the beating heart of, uh, IT is the beating heart of business, right? Well. I think it's, it's it, it, so we don't sell technology as a service. We sell business products. Yeah. We sell collateral, asset servicing, settlement, tax, ESG. That's the product. But 
we are a very IT intensive business. Of course. And this is where the, the, the balancing act or the alignment needs to, needs to come together because yeah. what we show to the market is the way I'm going to solve your problem. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be around the business problem we were going to define. Or can I help you do tax in a different way or be more effective in what you want to do? Yeah. But a big part of that then requires that the technology landscape and teams are laser focused on understanding the problem and doing the right solution. Okay. This is what makes us complex, I said at the beginning, <laughs> because the problem could be or seem relatively simple, but then you put the scale of what we operate, yeah. so the world, and it has to use tech, which is a combination of existing 1970s going to the moon kind of stuff versus cloud, which is the other extreme yeah. of, of, of where we are. And the challenge for IT teams is to manage that and to ensure that we deliver indeed a resilient, stable, efficient service that combines all of that in a seamless way for our clients that need to just see the end outcome of that, which is then a business product that we will deliver. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this, this modernizing the core um, uh, first, um, because I can imagine that you come from a mainframe oriented, fully, almost fully bespoke software development a world and, and so now you're going more into cloud and, 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 and off-the-shelf products, let's say. So how is that, how do you plan that move? What is the strategy to move to the cloud and to more, um, more ready-made uh, solutions? What's the big plan, the big strategy uh, behind that? So I think that it's, 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 it's like a multi-layered cake that you could, uh, you could imagine. So mm -hmm. we actually, we, we, can, we are convinced and we see today that mainframe is still a very stable and resilient platform for a lot mm -hmm. of things, especially when you're doing very intensive processing. It's, it's still actually to a large extent, one of the most efficient platforms, if not the most that exists. Mm -hmm. Having said that, over time, because it was the only thing available, banks, and we are comparable to banks in that yeah. regard, build on top of that, things for which now we have a different alternative, a different way. Okay. So we have a path which is, let's continue to invest in our engineering practices and knowledge around where we believe mainframe is for the next 10, 15 years, 20 years, okay. going to be the platform that needs to perform. And that's actually you know, something we will do forever. And where do we see opportunity mm -hmm. to begin to migrate to open systems and to different platforms more, more off the shelf? And this is where the cloud plays a part. And maybe just taking a step back, on how did we start the journey? Yeah. I think the first thing uh, we, we said to ourselves was because of the nature of what we do and the, the heavily regulated um, environment where we are and expectations from our clients in terms of security and safety, we are going to have a very conscious approach to do by steps. And the mm -hmm. steps are actually kind of twofold. First of all, is to explain and to engage upfront with all the guys around us. Mm -hmm. So our regulators, our clients, and saying, guys, we want to do this. And by the way, we're going to start with relatively simple products, which we would call you know, a, you know, a less important SLA service, still mm -hmm. a meaningful process, and that's, we're going to go there. And I'm going to tell you, mm -hmm. nine, 12 months ahead of schedule, this is my plan. Okay. Then you know. Then say, so I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to, once I've, I've done it, come back to you and say, well, this is the outcome I got, this is what I've learned, this is working well, this we need to improve. And then I'm going to tell you again, what is my next step? Mm -hmm. And that we started four years ago, with a non-critical, actually it was the, the outcome of an hackathon event. Mm -hmm. We built a tool we call Crystal, which is kind of a web caller tool that helps us to have a bit of sense about how things are happening. Mm -hmm. So this is going to be the first product we build on the cloud, non-critical, yeah. relatively neutral, non-mission critical, so we could do that. And we explained, and we used it. And that was four years ago? Four years ago. Okay. So something between 2019, 2009, okay. when, when I joined the company, and then, which is now CIO Mihao, was then the CTO, 
said, oh, let's do that together because we can learn out of that. Yeah. That worked well. Mm-hmm. Relatively small investment overall. So we're not, we're not talking you know, hundreds of millions of euros, yeah. really contained. And it worked well. Then we said, oh, now we're going to come up with a two to three years plan saying the next step is going to be that type of application, which is a bit high in terms of SLA. We're going to invest in terms of enablement to be sure that before we use it, we have the right setup in place infrastructure, security, delivery processes, quality control, you name the, the thing. Yeah. And then we do the same thing. And that's, we are in this process now where we moved again, our, our um, DLT platform runs in the cloud today. Mm-hmm. And that's something we always explain to our regulators. And I think that the way we see it is we call it upfront what we want to do. We explain why we believe there's value for us and for our market. Yeah. We explain the steps, both business-wise and technology-wise, what we will do. And we have this cycle of learning and reiterating. And the vision is that we are going progressively to migrate some of the workloads we have today from our current on-prem setup mm-hmm. to the cloud. Mm-hmm. We will be very mindful that there is always the right size between the, what they represent and the set we have put into place. Mm-hmm. And most likely, our near future is going to be a combination, of course, of on-prem and clouds, what everybody would call an hybrid setup, yep. and most probably further down the road, what we would discuss around hybrid and multi-cloud solutions. Okay. But I think the most important part of that is this, you need to explain and articulate well the vision first. Don't start with a very intensive build of things to do. Be sure that everybody understands what you want to go. Start small yeah. mm-hmm. and then learn and repeat the cycle up to the point you feel comfortable to have something more critical uh, up and running. And when you say we need to explain, is that to your clients? Is that to the regulators? Is that to the, the internal teams? It starts and... internally, because right. again, everybody has a lot of misconceptions regarding how easy or complex, mm-hmm. what are the, the caveats of cloud. I think it starts internally yep. within technology and the usual counterparts you will have either business or control functions, mm-hmm. audit risk. And depending where you are, they are more or less mature on the cloud. Don't forget, it's a journey for everybody. Mm-hmm. So if it's a journey for the tech teams, you can assume that your counterparts may need the same kind of heads-up timing to get adjusted to it. So each time you invest on that, you gain because if they understand better what you're going to do, then the control environment is going to be more adequate to what you need. So that's the step one. That that what we did, then engage with our clients. Are mm-hmm. you comfortable that I'm going to deliver the solution that operates yeah. in that environment? Because again, don't forget, in our context, they sit in different geographies. Yeah. Each market has its own um, sensitivity and, and awareness level of. So you want to be sure that you build something like, oh, by the way, yes, I'm not ready. So we did that. So when where are you going to be ready? And, when mm-hmm. you want to and then the regulators, of course, because they are the ones in what we operate in financial services, the customer set the tone out you want to do. And what I discovered in those conversations that are relatively open. Mm-hmm. Of course, they have a lot of questions that you need to answer to be reassuring because it's relatively new yep. as a domain. But if you engage and you have this dialogue, they are actually quite supportive because they also see it as an opportunity to modernize yeah. IT. So it's it's a bit of a dual conversation because, mm-hmm. yes, they express concerns, but at the same time, they want yeah. you to move up and to you know, remove some of the things which they know and everybody knows will need to be replaced over, over time. Okay. So you still need to explain to regulators, to internal teams, to clients. Do you also ha- sometimes have demand from, from clients or from regulators that this, this application really should... Uh, be better in the cloud and, and it will be safer or better or, uh, or, or easier to, to integrate or there's no demand for, uh, from the market? I think the way people express it mm-hmm. is, is not necessarily uh, on saying let's do it on the cloud, but it's, it's an obvious choice then to execute. 
So people want to be more and more using standard solutions. So, mm -hmm. so things that we all can all agree yeah. that is the process of, of creating a common service that usually relies on having shared components or standards you use. Yeah. And that's one of the things you get. And I think if you use the cloud right, which is I think a good discussion point, if you use it right, you're going to leverage mm -hmm. the components of the hyperscale and say, well, actually, we don't need to agree among us what we want to do. Yeah. We use that tool, which is public off the shelf, that allow us to be more efficient. So that's the way it comes to us is, mm -hmm. oh, let's try to speed up things, do it in a more standard way. And then often the logical thing to do is then to use the cloud as a solution. And actually, in our strategic intention, that's one of the things we try to use as a, as a starting point, saying, mm -hmm. if there's something new we need to build, <coughs> rather than doing bespoke on-prem, kind of think it like cloud-first kind of approach, saying, mm -hmm. most likely the best way to do it, most efficient, more resilient, the more up-to-date, modern way is going to leverage something that exists on the cloud. Can we piggyback those solutions to ensure yep. that we have a service? And if there's a trade-off to be made, probably it makes sense because 80-20 rule, mm -hmm. maybe we'll miss something that we'll be doing 20% bespoke, but actually, long-term vision, you benefit more from doing the long-term thing. Regulators, mm -hmm. because just to your point, it's, it's, it's kind of a dual discussion. Mm -hmm. Yes, they're interested and they're supportive because it's a way to modernize and to invest on things where they know that, especially financial institutions, again, they very often create their own data center and everybody has their own infrastructure because that was the only way to do things some years ago. Now you have more, more optionality. Mm -hmm. So they are saying, well, maybe it's a good option for you to consider. But <coughs> they're especially very concerned about you know, data sovereignty, uh, ensuring like the right ring fencing, the right setup, because it's also relatively complex to orchestrate, yeah. relatively new. So it's kind of a, at a combined conversation. So it mm -hmm. makes sense in some domains, yeah. but you have to be very mindful and very disciplined the way you do it. So let's talk a little bit about the first application that, that you're now using in, in, in the cloud setup. Are they more, I mean, is, are, are it all um, SaaS applications, uh, ready-made applications or, or, or technologies that you use, or you also do a, a lot of development in the cloud as well? So we have, I think we have a bit of everything. So <laughs> we have more and more packaged solutions uh -huh. in different ways of consumption where we buy off the shelf a product, mm -hmm. especially for, you know, common process that everybody has. So you do HR, you do trainings, yep. you do, there's a lot of things yeah. for which you can use more and more of these, of these products that you just embed. So more the satellite applications, not the core, but... Not the core. Yeah. Then we have a lot of, of, of um, bespoke ad hoc developments because we are building products. Mm -hmm using the cloud. And uh, we are progressively moving from, it was basically in the beginning more of a data presentation consultation applications. Mm -hmm. So less complex type of workloads and less yeah. integrated between our core systems. The last one we deliver in October is actually relatively complex because it combines ZLT, cloud, and our core systems to do something which is a bit more complex, which is issuance. Mm -hmm. So we are having the two, yeah. because we also see it again to my point in the beginning, it's a way to learn. So we started small, very consciously, saying yep. we want to do something which is relatively simple in terms of execution, but has business value and mm -hmm. to go around our data products. Yep. And now expanding the, the, the range of things to be sure that um, we, we manage the complexity behind. Yep. How much is cloud in your clear uh, a CIO, CDO, CTO discussion? Or how much is it also a general management and board discussion? I think it, it was part of, it's part of the things where, where IT is very um, engaged mm -hmm. uh, because people already see the benefit. And I think it's, it's something that business begins to recognize as being 
mastering that would allow us at one point in time to have a competitive advantage. So mm -hmm. building things right and trying to use for that cloud as being a way to standardize more, you know, take components where they are and actually become more of an aggregator. So mm -hmm. Lego building blocks actually, <laughs> rather than trying to build yourself, yeah. makes sense. So people begin to acknowledge on the business side of things, it actually makes sense because yeah. if I can leverage things that exist and combine them to answer a business problem, yeah. probably over time, we're going to be way more efficient than we are today. We are still doing a lot of discussions, education to understand the limits of that, because mm -hmm. again, it's not like a magic wand yeah. that is solve everything. But more and more is something where there is buy-in support because it's part of our journey to modernize mm -hmm. and to become more standard, but also to make more choices. So yeah. we want to be able to focus on things like we are quite unique, yeah. that nobody can do better than us. We want to be sure we have the resources, the time to focus on that and to build those things because you cannot buy them. Yeah. On the others, can we use more standard products because then we can focus yeah. on the things where we'll make the difference for the clients. I'm also asking the question how much top man or general management and uh, is involved because some CIOs nowadays start to complain that CEOs and, 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 and boards are, think that they all that they know everything about digital but not necessarily do and then start to, to, to mingle into the discussion without necessarily know uh, all the ins and outs. Is, is that a danger at uh, Europe as well? I think we are investing a lot of time as, as, as an organization, and that includes management, mm -hmm. to understand the challenges we have, you know, mm -hmm. from business problems up to IT solutions, and create awareness and a kind of a common setting about what we need to do to address them. Yeah. So this is why I said the first thing we do is we, we, we think about what to do and we educate a lot. Mm -hmm. And that includes the time we spend internally yeah. to come up with is like not only the potential positives of the solution, but mm -hmm. also the negative sides. Yeah. Like if you don't weigh optimize your cost, cloud can potentially be more expensive than less expensive as yeah. we go along. So I think the re our recipe for that is try to spend enough time mm -hmm. to socialize what we want to do, understand the intent, understand the potential concerns or questions, yeah. and then spend time discussing and engaging with the different stakeholders, which may be less tech savvy in the beginning, and say, okay, this is what you want to achieve, this is what we can get, be very transparent what we know and what we do not know. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you don't have all the answers, saying, well, we think this is the way to go, we have a working hypothesis that we want to demonstrate, and this is what we're going to do, and then we're going to tell you yeah. if that's the case or not. I think what works well for us is this iterative approach, mm -hmm. so saying, now, setting an ambition level, saying what we think is the thing we want to demonstrate, actually do it and verify, and then go progressively as we go along. And again, we moved from four years ago, we were doing relatively small, no, non-critical applications mm -hmm. on the cloud. Now we are ready and are comfortable to do critical applications and workloads on the cloud four years after. Yeah. I believe that in your in banking years, it's relatively fast to go from that state to the other. You could argue that some of us could then faster. I believe that it's it's actually quite decent as a pace mm -hmm. in terms of going from zero to what we are today. Yeah. That requires a lot of education, not of, of dialogue. Okay. So you're going for, I mean, you, you clearly have a hybrid uh, cloud strategy mm -hmm. uh, where um, most of the core is still uh, on-prem, uh, uh, but you're moving step-by-step step, uh, into both uh, more ready-made cloud applications and cloud development. Uh, if I can summarize it like that. So that does that mean, so that uh, if I look at it from the outside, that means that you are now needing more different types of teams because you need hmm. cloud teams, you still need on-prem teams, you need hybrid. So so does, does where you are today, does your cloud strategy 
in, has that increased a little bit the complexity in IT, or has it, is it already decreasing complexity? I think that's a very that's a very good point you're making because indeed it requires a different set of skills, which mm -hmm. is the first thing we had to work on. Also, that's why it needs to be progressive. Is you don't have up front in house yeah. all the skills you need. So to, what we did it was actually very conscious of saying we decided what were the teams the teams that actually were more eligible and more relevant to move the, to the cloud. Mm -hmm. So then we invested on being sure they had the right training, the right environment to learn, yep. operate. And then we had to hire and to work also with our partners. So how can we speed our own learning curve to be sure that we have enough internal knowledge and we build that knowledge over time to be able to tackle more critical roads. And that's something that I think it was clear in how mm -hmm. to do, yeah. but it takes more time maybe than, and, and it's more difficult to imagine because there's a lot of competition and everybody wants to get the yep. same engineers yep. and the same guys which have done it before and that experience in particular in regulated industries. So that's one of the things where we still see constantly the need yep. to invest and to provide an environment where those guys feel rewarded yep. and see that. And that's one thing we had, we had to do. Uh, uh, in the process. And then I lost, what was the other part of your question? Yeah, the question was, does it, uh, it increases complexity, complexity okay. because you have different types of teams, but at the same time, you're not doing a, a lift and shift and, yeah, so, and bringing yeah. complexity to, to the cloud. So you're making sure, in fact, that you use the cloud in the most optimal and, 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 and best possible way, correct? So, so it's actually a good paradox because you could, you can imagine that over time, cloud is going to simplify things in the way you operate. Mm -hmm. Yet in the beginning, you're just adding a new tech. Yeah. So indeed, uh, when you start, you're adding a layer of complexity to what you do. So you need, you need a different set of skills. You build in a different operate. Sorry, you build in a different way, you monitor in a different way, and you operate in a different way, the yeah. solutions. So one of the things we realize by doing it is sometimes we have to pace ourselves in the sense of you cannot adopt right away all this shiny new stuff mm -hmm. that the cloud will enable you to do because you need ecosystem around you yeah. to do it. I give you like an example. Everybody is in love with containers or decomposition of services, yeah. which make tons of sense for different reasons. Yet the consequence of that is that it's very easy to monitor a box with a big box. It has one thing. If it works, you're fine. If you have 500 boxes to monitor, mm -hmm. then you need to know which is the one which has a problem. Yeah. Uh, and again, it seems trivial, but it's not. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we, we realize in our journey is that you have to be mindful on when are you ready end to end to manage the complexity that cloud brings. Because indeed, in the beginning, it's adding a layer and actually doesn't remove anything yeah. because you continue to operate using a different set of stacks. What you actually see the benefit of it is, I think, if you do it right. <coughs> and what mm -hmm. do I mean by do it right? It's... Every provider has his own version of a specific technology. Mm -hmm. So what we try to do is to be as abstract or as generic as possible, yeah. because not, not only that allows to remove a kind of vendor lock-in mm -hmm. or, or two specific things you do, because every cloud has a different flavor, mm -hmm. at the same time, be more efficient because it's easier to train somebody on transversal capabilities yeah. than very specific ones. So if you have an expert on hyperscaler one versus hyperscaler two, then you create a kind of different bottleneck because you need the guy that knows that specific version yep. of specific twist. And that's one of the things of the traps of it. And what those providers will try to push you in in a nice, <laughs> polite way is, please leverage the maximum what I can provide. Yeah. But then you're going to refall again into a, a lock-in that all of us know from different technologies they use. Said, yep. oh, I just realized that 
there is no way out of that specific thing, a specific feature I decided to use 15 years ago. Yeah. So you're very conscious of potential vendor lock-in. We are because every technology that even if it seems standard, mm -hmm. over time, they all have different twists and specialities because they have a different background. Some yeah. are going to tell you that they're specific on our big data queries because that's the background. Yeah. Others are going to tell you the, the interaction with their ecosystem of tools that everybody uses. Mm -hmm. And I could go on and go on and, uh, with yeah. examples. And you need to be very conscious on the trade-offs you make. Mm -hmm. When are you going to use it? Because it actually makes sense for you to tap into today, but you know there is no way out. Yeah. So you are creating something that 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 is going to, by default, yeah. uh, create a form of, of vendor lock-in and remove leverage for you. Or when are you actually going to do the opposite? Because you prefer to do something more generic in terms of implementation, but you consciously know that it's to prevent the fact they're going to be locked in or stuck because either the provider or the skills you need for that yeah. will become too specific over time. Antonio, how do you select the, the partners? How do you select the hyperscalers that, uh, that you want to work with? So the, the, way, the way we look at, at providers and people want to engage, it's, it's actually very linked to the, what we are mm -hmm. and, and the part we play within the ecosystem. So one of the first things that we look at is their kind of regulatory compliance posture. Mm -hmm. We can only work with companies that have understood the context we operate and that are very keen to, to fit in what a regulator and the regulators we have to operate expect. Yeah. And, and we look at, at relatively emerging technologies, and again, cloud is relatively new, relatively old, but you <laughs> want to, to look at it. One of the things we first looked at was what are the ones that have better understood not only the regulatory environment of today, yeah. but the direction of travel. You have things like door in Europe, but there are equivalents everywhere mm -hmm. in the world. So one of the things we look at is to what extent are these companies proactively engaging yeah. to understand what regulators yeah. and, and control environments expect out of them everywhere, all the complexity it requires in terms of you know geopolitical environment, technology investments, yeah. provider relations, exit scenarios, all the things you would expect. So yeah. that number one would be the way people uh, adapt and manage regulation. Do we see the constraints? Or do you see it as a, a benefit? Do they proactively try to engage to answer the direction of travel, or do you have to be pushed to, to move? That's like, I think that's one of the first things we look at. The second one we look at would be uh, what is the ecosystem, the environment around the company? Uh, are, they, are they big, small, large? Yeah. And what are they focused in terms of markets? And you're a global company. And I'm a global company. So you need to a global supplier. Who is better placed in, in what yeah. geography? Uh, how do you understand the industry? And then, and then like a bit of a, of, of a funnel view, because yeah. you could start with banking or financial services, but what we do is relatively specific mm -hmm. within capital markets on the space we operate. Yeah. So where do we see the best industry kind of like combination of? And then a third element uh, before going to financials is how does the technology fit with our own landscape? Mm -hmm. So we all of us have different starting points. Some of us are more mainframe, some of us are more open. Some will go with one kind of provider or the other. It also plays a part, is our own readiness to embark in the technology journey and how fast we can learn or not. Yep. And then, of course, you have a financial dimension, which mm -hmm. is who seems to have the better deal or the better fit with what we want to do yep. in terms of, of process and journey in the cloud. And that's like, I think this is four dimensions regulation, uh, their own process, technology fit and costs or financial approach should be the way we try to look at the lens of these partners. Okay. And in general, would you say that your move to the cloud step by step, is, is cloud more cost effective or is cloud more expensive than, than doing everything yourself? 
I mean, it's, I think it's very often, uh, if, if, what is the kind of thing you're trying to compare? Mm-hmm. Or, or apples to apples kind of yeah. thing. We, we don't think that if you try to compare what a service costs full in, like from the infra side, you are going to massively have reductions of, because consumption-based, or if you have a lot of pauses, mm-hmm. you're transferring a workload to another device that doesn't generate in itself <coughs> a lot of financial benefits. Where we do see a benefit, but that's more difficult to measure, is cloud forces you, first of all, to make choices. Mm-hmm. So do I need five applications to do the same thing? I can just have one. And then in the process of migrating, do I kill something which I knew I wanted to do everywhere, yep. but I didn't take the time. So cloud becomes like a, a trigger to do some rationalization applications. Mm-hmm. That's one which we already yep. see. And by doing that, can you streamline part of the process or the process in the sense of because you choose to narrow down your landscape mm-hmm. and be more standard, you force people to converge everywhere to have a single set of tools, a single set of patterns, yep. single set of practices. So all of a sudden, if you have three different teams that were doing things differently to you know, deliver software to production, once you agree on a pipeline to go live, yep. then you're going to the benefit of that. And that's stuff we begin to see, mm-hmm. which is, again, relatively new to or for us. We are still in the process of that. There we see the benefit because by moving to standardization, automation, you know, having more common patterns we share when we produce and we ship products, yep. we see the benefit of that because we are a large software company in a wide sense of the term. So cloud is part of the process to trigger that process. So Antonio, an, uh, another, uh, I think, major um, topic and I can imagine a general important concern in your organization is security. Um, so how would how do you look at that? Does, does cloud make your your the, the life of your CISO more easy or more complex? Well, I think that's that's a very good point. I think the reason, for instance, we were able to move relatively so fast on, on our journey, so we did add almost nothing to now critical work for years, <clears throat> is that we were very aligned with the, with the, our CTO that was then now our CEO and, and our CISO on we need to go cloud because it's a way to ship products faster for business and to be more efficient on this side. So we didn't need to be convinced internally or mm-hmm. of the need to go there. But what we did was consciously agree that we're going to go this progressive approach. So we build knowledge in the teams, including security and CISO. Mm-hmm. We define how, how comfortable we are to the move to the next step. And then we can agree, which is like the, the, the required level to be comfortable with that kind of workload and move on. Mm-hmm. So yes, it brings more complexity to our CISO and to infrastructure as a whole, but because we do it in a progressive way, we can manage and we can plan ahead. And we're already discussing now, which is the next cycle of evolutions based on where we are in the process. Okay. Antonio, some people sometimes say that cloud is like a free lunch. You just uh, get your license uh, and then you open the box and the, and the application starts to work. So it's, it's just simple like that. What's, what's your view on that? Well, I think, well, well to have a free lunch, somebody is always paying for that. So mm-hmm. I think what we, what we consciously did in the beginning was to be sure that we are very clear about who is supposed to do what and for what purpose. Mm-hmm. So, and it was a bit surprising initially because the real expectation was, was I was saying like, oh, we have signed the deal, you have choose the part, and I can just go online and I'm getting all this toolkit and goodies I can use, uh, like kind of a free, but actually, the first point was for us was, well, somebody's going to pay for that. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to be sure we have a very you know, clear catalog of things you can do, things we will not do, and things you could potentially ask to do. Yeah. 
And we, when we share that, of course, the population of people concerned by building products, so say, guys, like, we want to be sure we understand what we do. We have a certain set of constraints we want to follow, <coughs> from security to financial to operating. So this is what is available to us today because of that. Let's use that. Let's see the value generates. And then over time, actually what we're doing now is opening the toolbox and the toolkit. When we feel more comfortable that people understand we can the benefit of it and are they more mature, mm -hmm. then the journey progresses. I think that's a very important thing to put into place, to set expectations right. Yeah. To be sure the teams don't get frustrated while you say, well, guys, like, not, it's not because when I go in cloud that all of a sudden yeah. you fundamentally remove all the things that work as impediments for a team. Mm -hmm. You have to manage it in a different way. So managing that communication right, I think, is a very important part of the process to ensure people understand what you do. And again, it's a journey. You're not going to be ready from day one. So the more you are clear where you want to be today and tomorrow, yeah. the more you generate value and, and more you have engagement from the teams on that. Okay. We're talking about complexity and agility. So we already uh, talked uh, quite a lot about complexity, how clouds in the beginning can increase complexity a little bit, but also uh, typically comes or has the promise to bring more agility. So tell me a little bit, where are you in your, in your agility roadmap? In, 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 um, I can imagine that um, being uh, developing software in more agile ways and so on is, is, is an important strategy as well. Talk a little bit about that. I think that there are two dimensions that go end to end with this, which mm -hmm. is uh, agility, and there's the one which is having predictability. Mm -hmm. So the agility part where I think we see the biggest benefit is indeed with alignment on are we focusing on the right problems with the right solutions? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily are we shipping way, way faster than before, because again, in a B2B ecosystem that connects from New York to Tokyo, you have a lack of stakeholders to align on a given date to be ready. Mm -hmm. But being sure that you use the agile techniques to say, is this the right problem? Uh, am I over-engineering the requirements? Can I start something relatively small, mm -hmm. but still for purpose and build incrementally? This is where we see the, big, the, beginning of the biggest value for us today is yep. we have a process to say, okay, this is what we need to do. It has to be good enough to operate in what we do. Mm -hmm. So our sense of an MVP is probably the, 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 the line is higher than what others expect, yep. but this is the, the constraints of where we operate, mm -hmm. but allows to have much more clarity within, within us as an organization and with our clients say, this is what we're going to get yep. for that. And we're not going to over-engineer a requirement phase that would be too long versus what you want to achieve. I think that would be, yep. be the number one thing that I would say. And then predictability just for that is, it is very important that your process allows to be ready at a given date. And this is where I think we are not unique, but it's, 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 it's very relevant and very present in our day to day, which is when you're trying to combine all of these different stakeholders, which are relatively complex in their own rights. Mm -hmm. If you say you're going to be ready at, at date A, and that date is 18 months ahead of us, you need to make it. So our secret sauce for Agile is trying to combine these two dimensions. I need to be sure I deliver the expected quality for that date, and that date has a lot of side effects of of dependencies everywhere. Yep. So I need to do my part to be able to eat it at left level. And I want to use Agile to be sure that I have a much better understanding of the scope and I can like build by iteration. I think this is where we feel in other industries which are more time sensitive, like you know, if we'll be doing retail, probably the, the arguments would be different. But yep. in the context of where we operate of B2B, mm -hmm. I really see the benefit of what we do. And also it's a learning process because defining how, how, what is the right size to go live, what you call an MVP, and, and you can have different ways to, to phrase it or shape it, yep. is not natural for an organization that is used to doing more 
V projects or waterfalls, so, you know, these kind of wish lists. Then everybody knows that at least 30% you don't need, but who? <laughs> nobody will always okay. agree. It's yeah. always somebody else that has the 30%, never your project. So yeah. HR how allow us to have the dialogue in a much more structured way yeah. and to progress on that idea. Can we actually focus on the things that create more value? be more value-driven, outcome-driven in terms of what we execute. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about the IT organization. Euroclear in total, 4,000 people. How many in IT and how is the IT uh, set up? We are around 2,000, 2,500 wow. uh, overall. So we, we have we have the classical functions, I would say, of, of an IT organization. So we have a very large um, CTO, so infrastructure organization, mm -hmm. which, is, which is a very significant part of what we do because indeed, we have a very complex set of systems to operate, a lot of countries and geographies we need to uh, be compliant, which is built over time. So that's a, a big focus for us, being sure. And we have uh, a lot of, of very good quality people there to ensure that we deliver services with that quality, with that level of, of, of expectations as we go along. That's like a big part of what we do. Mm -hmm. Then we have application development, mm -hmm. which is basically twofold. So. Uh, we have a part that is very centered on the, our current core business products and how to deliver those services. And that tends to be more mainframe intensive as it's going to an open system. Mm -hmm. Then we have a part, IRN, which is more on transversal solutions, client-facing tools, which tends to be more uh, open system-minded. Again, the balance you get among the two. Then we have a very, a very strong and growing CISO function yeah, of uh, <laughs> because over time, these requirements are more and more present and the team has significantly grown in both in size and maturity uh, over the last years or so. And then we have two other functions we'll find very often in IT. So an architecture function, mm -hmm. set directions, combine business ambitions with IT strategy and technology and, and manage this process on the behalf of the group and a classical uh, CIO office uh, management that, that helps us do anything which is very transversal, HR, finance, uh, communications, common processes that enables then the rest of technology to deliver and acts yeah. very often as an interface between technology and the rest of the group. Because as you said, we are a very tech intensive company. Yeah. So we represent a large part of the staff and the investments of the company. So it's very important that we have the right dialogue of course. between the tech organization yeah. and the rest of the group. Let's talk just a little bit on data and, and, and maybe AI as well. Mm -hmm. is, is that a big thing? And, and does that sit in, 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 in IT as well? So that's, that's actually a very big thing. One of the things we want to do as part of strategic intent mm -hmm. is to build more and more what we call data-enabled services. Mm -hmm. And just to be a less cryptic, what does it mean for us, data-enabled services? So we want to use data to bring value either to our core existing products mm -hmm. or to invent new solutions. Mm -hmm. So we don't think that, at least for us, there's value on selling raw data. I think that that's probably not the best thing for us and others do that much better than we, we do. Mm -hmm. But trying to make our products smarter or more efficient because of it, this, this you see potential. I, I give you two examples. So recently we, so we launched something called ESG Collateral is a way to allow our clients to do collateral to include the ESG criteria in the solution, what they do, mm -hmm. which we believe makes a lot of sense and for which we see yep. being of adoption. And this is a very concrete example of how can we use the data and the fact we have, we have partnered and invested in, in some fintechs to make what we do more relevant to our clients. At the same time, we also think there are problems out there which are basically data problems where Leveraging the ecosystem we have today, so mm -hmm. the partners and, and clients we have, if they accept with us to address it, we're going to be able to answer business problems. 
So on that, we have a few ideas or things we're working on yeah. where you will see us launching services, what we call a data enabled services. We start with the data foundation, being sure we have the right data with the right usage, with the right permission level. Yeah. And if we, if we build that, we will be able to create new products that allow us to solve industry problems. Okay, super. And, and how about AI? So, I think AI is a very interesting uh, topic because I think it's one of the technologies that has exploded recently, which actually mature to be used. Mm -hmm. I will make a comparison with something we look, also looked at as like quantum computing, mm -hmm. very promising tech. But again, our understanding of that is it's actually not quite industry grade yet, yet or a wide scale because either it's too costly, too difficult to execute. So. Very promising, but probably still two, five years, mm -hmm. not ready to be deployed at a very large scale, at, at least for us. AI, on the other hand, outside of the buzz of ChatGPT, Bard, all the others like competitors, you really see that we have leapfrogged years in months. It's getting there. When you give it a try, you begin to see the benefits. So you can see tangibly how things can improve. So on our side, we actually build what kind of sandbox and we have a kind of a, an internal task force squad working on that. So what we did was, first of all, you try the series of business problems. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them are more business really related, so functions, activities where you see this could make sense. Some of them are really more intensive technology, things around testing, quality reviews, other stuff. And we are using that to assess what is the best solution out there we can use and see what is the gap between do we demonstrate the value we expect to get? So I'm going to remove some of these tasks that can actually be automated. And then do we have the enablement right? So we believe on that one, it is, is one we should we think in the next 12, 18 months. It's going to be amazing huh? what's going to happen. It's there. going to be amazing. Um, it, it's relatively ready, so it's mature, wow. uh, faster than others. And we can actually potentially see already kind of where we're going to be uh, generating value. So, but again, coming back to the cloud question, we are going to do, we're doing the, basically the same thing. We try to figure out what other things we want to do. We are very progressive about this is the intent. We first will start small, demonstrate that we see the value and we can actually operate it. Yeah. So we are going to use and be mindful about data sovereignty. We're going to be mindful about ge geographies. We're going to be mindful of all these things that need to be there for us to use. And then if we see the promise materialize, because we have done the right homework, we know we can scale it relatively fast. Okay, super. Now, in your big IT organization, and more than 50% of the people work in IT, yeah? 2,500 or 4,000 is the estimate. You have a CIO function, you have a CTO function, you have a CISO function, but you also have a chief, chief digital uh, officer, the CDO function. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit, what is exactly your role in the organization? So my role is actually is dual. Um, mm -hmm. So I report both into IT, so uh, I actually have two bosses. So uh, is that a good or a bad thing? Uh, I don't have three, so uh, I think it's, it's it's a good thing. I think it's 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 it helps a lot. I think in a journey we're trying to uh, mm -hmm. to have, which is how can we get close and more between the, the business side of the organization and IT. Mm -hmm. And my role and what I do is is try to embody that and support it. But so it's actually twofold. So and on technology side, of, I spend my time trying to improve improve the client experience. And basically anything which is around the way we engage with clients, so which is client-facing mm -hmm. applications. Anything is regarding data and AI, your question. So I can create insights to make us more relevant and automate our processes, sit with me. Mm -hmm. And whenever we have a business problem, we are not really clear or want to address that most likely is going to require some kind of new technology enablement. Yeah. 
Then we have a team, what we call innovation, that focuses on that. So very often, they don't have the monopoly, but very often, they are the ones that are going to bring in the organization a new set of things we want to do. The example I gave with DLT, that was the case. We're working on something that seemed like the right problem to do. Mm -hmm. DLT seemed like the right solution. They are going to be the vehicle to bring it in and then work with their counterparts. Yeah. The CTO function, the CISO function, EA, to say, okay, guys, this seems to be the right solution for that problem. Yeah. We don't know it yet. How do we build a roadmap for that? So I spend my time doing that. And then the other part of my time is working on the business and the client experience itself, saying, try to set a direction. And then some of, some of the times, the execution of that is going to also to sit with me. Okay, so you do all the fun stuff then? then. We do a lot of fun stuff, you're all clear. <laughs> so I think all that we do is fun in different domains. So mm -hmm. again, if you work, for instance, in, in, in more um, the core of what we do, the scale of what you operate is incredible. So you mm -hmm. actually are tapping yeah. into the art of capital markets and yeah. what you do allow us to process that. Yeah. Then I would concentrate on another part, which is equally fun, about how do I show this to clients? Yeah. It's a different way to create value. I think mm -hmm. the, the, what I like what we do with Euroclear is that all the pieces of the puzzle require the others to work. Yeah. There's not one without the other, yeah. but it gives you a different angle, a different flavor of the operate, and you actually represent, if you work in technology, the diversity of technology. It's, it's, it's a relatively old and, and recent industry. Yeah. All of these companies date more or less from the 70s. Others yeah. are more recent. So the, we have to combine them as we go along to actually deliver value, and especially yeah. in banking. These things coexist, so a service is only the way you combine these things together to deliver value. That's, I think that's part of the trick that we have to manage, actually, as we go along. Okay, super. Now, I, I assume you have a, a team as a, a CDO as well, so tell, us, tell me a little bit about your team and, and the type of people that you have in your team. Uh, so, we are overall, in, in Euclid, I think it's one of the best things in the organization. We are very diverse kind of organization. We have 80 or 90 different nationalities, people come from all across parts of environment. In my case, I have a combination of people which have been there since uh, since a, a long time. So people that know the product very well, the industry, the organization super well, and they have grown with the organization over time. Yeah. I have people that are more recent to the organization. They tend to be of different profiles. A lot of them have technical kind of backgrounds, mm -hmm. but not all of them. So it's a combination of people who are coming from the business strategic angle of things, and some of them which are pure core, either are mathematicians on data and analytics, or more in engineering for the ones that are more software related. Yep. So it's a patchwork of people, nationality-wise, not you ask me the question, I think it's funny because I think it's almost almost all of them are Belgium, <laughs> which is quite rare in IT because we're way more than invested. That. If you look at the management team of IT, mm -hmm. we have one Belgium colleague and everybody else is from different countries. Yep. So we have one, but in my case, actually, the, the extreme version opposite is just... There's nothing wrong with Belgians, eh, uh, Antonio? Nothing wrong. <laughs> it's just, it was not on purpose, but it happened over time that it was the case. Yeah. And, yeah. and most of them are relatively recent in the organization, which mm -hmm. is also a trade, because we are expanding to a building's capability, which is linked with our conversation before. We didn't have them internally. Yeah. So we needed to go out to the market and, and tap into... Yeah. What would people have done this before that we could tap the experience and actually gain time in, in our own curve? So you have to attract and motivate and grow top talent in your team. Maybe this is a good place to, to explain why would people join your team and, and what, what's your secret in making them successful? I think, I think the, the, the interesting part is actually not my team specific with Zero Clear as an organization. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
you sit in a company which is quite unique in the world. So the scale that we operate, again, the 37 trillion, the one ten zeros <laughs> kind of thing. And if you like technology or business overall, you have an ability to make an impact on the world around you. So our purpose is it finishes with sustainable economical growth. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something you can be proud of. Yeah. So you would come to a company where your goal is to allow the world to develop faster and better as you go along. I'll give you a concrete example. Like everybody remembers post-COVID reconstruction, the cost of that effort. Yeah. We have decided in Europe to invest on that. A big part of that process flows to our channels and to the relations we have yeah. with the market. When you join Euroclear, you're part of that. And not only you're part of that, then if you really want to talk about IT, yeah. you have the chance to work in a complex yet rich environment of technologies. Yeah. You can grow, so you can move from one domain to the other. And we combine the cutting edge of things we do on cloud, DLT, blockchain, quantum containers. I could just call them out because we basically work on all of these variations mm -hmm. and the intense processing heavy lifting things we do with other systems. So you can, you can go in your career very quickly from one to the other. So I think that provides you a set of opportunity that you can elsewhere. For instance, just one domain which is interesting, data. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, we, we, we have a playground that almost nobody has mm -hmm. because in the field we operate, we are so essential to some of the things that, that are in the market that if, when you join us, you can actually tap into that and work with clients to try to address these problems from again, New York to Tokyo, while sitting somewhere in Europe. Yeah. I think that's quite unique. Mm -hmm. and, and we do that in my team, but we do elsewhere in the organization. Euclid provides that opportunity, that window to the world where, yes, you can be sitting in Belgium and all of a sudden, yeah. what you do is going to have an impact somewhere else in the world and with a purpose, which I think is very important in the current days. What, what's the typical desired or, or uh, management style in Euroclear? How would you describe that and how would you describe your own management style? I think we are a very inclusive and, and, and I think we are very inclusive, very mindful mm -hmm. and very engaged kind of company mm -hmm. overall, uh, which is inclusive in the sense like we operate everywhere and we have very different sides of clients. So we have to be very mindful. Everybody has to be very mindful about how do we engage with others, cultures, geographies, religions, politics, like, because mm -hmm. that's where the environment we have to work. Yeah. And I think that creates an environment where you feel welcomed and respect as who you are, and, and we like people that bring their own you know, piece to the puzzle because mm -hmm. everybody brings a different piece. So I think that's super important for us yeah. uh, as, as you know, people are very engaged. So what we do is very impactful, and that's the good of that and the bad of that. So you have to be very serious, very disciplined on what we, whatever thing you do in terms of like getting things connected. Mm -hmm. And your question got in my own style. I think I, I, I like to drive with two things which kind of combine. I, I, I love talking about where we want to be, the outcomes we want to, to reach. Mm -hmm. More than a specific task that we think we need to perform, I think it's very important that everybody agrees the end state, what yep. good looks like, mm -hmm. and try to express it in a way that everybody will understand it, mm -hmm. starting with the lens of the clients. Because we don't, we don't deliver products for the sake of delivering products. We want to reach outcomes. This is the problem I try to fix. This is the thing that doesn't work. This is the thing they need. So I, I like to express it in that way yeah. and try to set this dot on rest saying, okay, now we're doing this, but that's like just a path to get where we want to be. And they want to be, should be expressed in a way that you can explain it to everybody mm -hmm. what you try to do yeah. and then work backwards from that yeah. saying what needs to happen. So you have to set um, 
very clear expectations of what, what you want from the outcomes that you're expecting yes. from your people and then give them enough. And express it in a way which is mm -hmm. not very easy. So technology people tend to be very focused on the what you do things, the process, the step, the engineering part. Mm -hmm. And sometimes lose track about the end state of what you want to reach. Yeah, the why. So the why of things and what is the thing you're trying to fix for clients? Again, in the way that clients would recognize it. So I see part of my role actually to connecting those dots saying, okay, you see what you do? Yeah, but the bigger picture is, this is why there's a problem out there that they want us to do. What, they, what we want to see as outcomes, they use the thing we have built. Mm -hmm. And they would say, oh, by the way, you done that, now if you fix my issue, or improve what I'm trying to do, or you reduce the risk. But we, I want to have a conversation which is outcome-based, mm -hmm. less on what we do, and then agree on the path to go there. That's the other part, what, what, on what I, I, I think I bring is, you set a dot in the horizon, but then you're very clear on the steps to get there. Mm -hmm. Focusing on the first ones, because again, very often that's why Agile is useful. You don't always know exactly where you want you need to be or to do in the next three years. Mm -hmm. It's easier to plan for the next three months. Yep. But if you have the dot in the horizon, then you can check if you're going in the right direction or not. And then you just course. Yep. So management style is one thing. Another thing I would like to know uh, from you is how would you describe your leadership style, because there's a different thing in, in managing people and giving, creating the environment and, and setting clear goals and so on, and, and, and leadership. And maybe, um, um, yeah, w could you give an example or could you describe a little bit how you perceive yourself and how people around you perceive you That's as good, a leader? That's a good question. I try to do two things. Mm -hmm. So I try to lead and inspire by example, mm -hmm. so that I, I show what I expect people to do or the direction I want to travel and that, that my behavior and the way I engage, the way that I behave, the way I express myself, gives a sense of direction, purpose, and of people. This is what I expect you to do mm -hmm. in your own way, in your own voice. So not to copy what, what I am, but you, this is what I believe we should be doing. And then you you bring it your own style. That, that's yep. one. And I think the second one is, is by being good. Very often in corporate environments, people say you need to be cutthroat aggressive, mean, violent, competitive, like all these things. I actually fundamentally believe that's actually not the case. Mm -hmm. So I think it's pushing collaboration, understanding, empathy, putting <coughs> yourself in the shoes of the other, where is the other counterpart, and making the extra mile to understand what you want to do, their constraints, their expectations, and yours, is actually the right thing to do. Which yeah. sometimes is not easy because you're always somebody that annoys you, or you think they don't listen to you. So mm -hmm. I try to do a conscious effort that the behavior I, I want to push is, no, assume that they are being mindful. Assume that you can explain better. Assume that you can do something else. And that's the kind of behavior I would like the organization to have. It's one of the things actually, coming back to your point, what I think you're clear is a particularly good environment. I think that's the way most people operate and it's part of our values. The sense if you try to do the right thing for the clients, for the market, for your colleagues, yep. in the end, is going to actually drive performance. So I fundamentally believe, and that's one of the things I try to do, to do as a leader and as a manager, to inspire that behavior and, and that belief that if you have to choose between, uh, do I do a nasty email to somebody in the evening while I wait the day after, and I try to say, okay, maybe maybe I had a bad day. Maybe I'm just asking the question. Mm -hmm. That That's the kind of thing I want to push. And sometimes you have to be tough and decisive and have uh, less, less easy conversations, but that's like, the end of something that should lead to to be done in a different way. Antonio, let's dive a little bit deeper and let's talk a little bit more about uh, your personality mm -hmm. because I'm, I'm convinced that 
the reason why you do this job is, is because you are driven by certain um, things, you're steered by certain value and, uh, values and, and so on, and, and also by your genetics and your personality. So you shared with us that your MBTI yep. uh, profile is ENTJ, also known as the commander. Typical leadership uh, profile, I would say, and these are extroverted, intuitive thinking, and uh, people with judging personality traits. And they, uh, they're decisive people who love uh, momentum, accomplishments, and they gather information to construct a creative visions, but rarely hesitate for long before acting upon them. Now, I'm gonna give you a couple of typical strengths of an uh, ENTJ. And then, so tell me where you recognize yourself and maybe give an example of that. So typical strengths of a commander uh, is that they are efficient, energetic, self-confident, strong-willed, they're strategic thinkers, and they are charismatic and inspiring, which correlates uh, most with, uh, with your uh, personality. Just to, to, to first of all, I, I still consider myself as a, an introvert. As, as an introvert. As an introvert, I've done some work on it, so I'm getting better. And maybe just telling you a story how we get there. Uh -huh. When I was growing up, and I, was, I think it was 15, 16, mm -hmm. um, I was very introvert. So I love spending time doing coding, mm -hmm. days of things by myself. Okay. And, and my parents were relatively concerned by that, saying like, when is he going to come out of his shell? this old, old child? <laughs> Something. And then, and then one day I got a book because I like reading. So it's one of the things I like to do still today. And my father gave this book from a Portuguese author. And, and the basic story about was a young man like myself that was hesitating between two things. Mm -hmm. Do I do I go in, and it's in the Middle Ages, a bit like the building we are today, where do I want to be active in the world? So in my city, be engaged, change things, improve? Mm -hmm. Or do I want to spend my days as an hermit, praying and thinking about what I should look like and devote myself to that? Yep. Because that's my way of, of making good to the world. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, Hermit, two choices. And I, and I read the book, and my own comment from my father was, did you get a message? <laughs> and no other, no other explanation, no discussion was, I was like, that seemed weird then. But over a, bit, a few weeks, I was like, oh, so I do have a choice. Mm -hmm. Either do I want to be active, active in, in the sense of active world, mm -hmm. or I want to spend my time thinking about the world and, and maybe everything. And that actually led to a career choice. When I was doing my history studies, mm -hmm. That came again to me, say, oh, I have two choices. I can decide to stay with one of my passions, which is thinking about what happened before and what can we learn of that and what, what you do in that kind of domain, which, yeah. which I still love doing. Or you can be more active in the world of today and a corporate environment is actually a very way, a very nice way to be engaged. Then I chose that path, which, which I'm still doing today. And I think one of the things that led me to Euroclear was that mm -hmm. being in an environment where what you do has actually have an impact of what we do. That's why I'm so proud of the work we're doing with, with within the company about our purpose and our vision because mm -hmm. I think we're getting sharper to explain what I feel from the inside, which is we do things in a mindful way. We are mindful about our role in the world overall yeah. and with the role we play. Again, not being naive about it and the contradictions or the challenges it faces, but we, what we try to do is to that the actions we take as a company, as a group, mm -hmm. reflect on what we are. And I think that's something which drives me actually this idea of trying to combine fundamentally what I like, which is I like to have the impact on the world around it, and doing it in a conscious way, yep. and, and accepting that it's it's not black and white. Very often we have to take decisions yep. which are difficult. 
very cool to, uh, way to, um, to talk about your strengths. A, a very nice story uh, of the book that your father gave you. Now let's look at the flip side. Yeah. Uh, everybody has his strong points and development areas, weaknesses. And ENTJs have to be careful not to be stubborn or dominant. They can sometimes be intolerant or impatient, arrogant. They sometimes have poor handling of emotions and they can be cold and ruthless. So are there things that where you recognize yourself and how have you developed, have overcome some of these weaknesses? So I could say almost all of them <laughs> at one point in time or at a moment in time. I think what, what, what helps me now, uh, and it was less the case when I was younger, is I'm more conscious about those. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I, I started doing that years ago and I still do. I do coaching. So I have a coach which I work with mm -hmm. uh, that helps him kind of get centered sometimes or a specific thing I know I will have to do, which I'm maybe less comfortable, or I need a bit of a nudge. Mm -hmm. That helps me a lot uh, to be just being more mild. And I invest time on that because I see the benefit of doing that. Okay. But I also do now more now, which I'm getting older than before. I'm more proactive to ask for feedback mm -hmm. and not, not your usual friends. The one you know you're going to say, yeah, of course, I like your friend. No, is the ones also you know that you have more difficulties to engage because you know, we are all a bit different. So I try to proactively say, well, now, am I doing the right thing? Mm -hmm. Do you understand what I want to do? Or if I have something I, I thought was not clear is yeah. or I was being overbearing or arrogant, I try to reach out to people and ask them that question and use it as feedback. Sometimes it's, it's nice, sometimes it's more challenging for you, but because I know I have some of these traits, mm -hmm. I said, okay, then I have to be working about it. And that sometimes they can come around. What I also try to do, again, coming with concrete example is, if I, for instance, I try to now do less emails in the weekend, or I try to react mm -hmm. less if I know I have a bad day, probably my answer, especially in written for format, for instance, is going to be very positive even if I had a good day. So as you get to know yourself better, mm -hmm. I, I've put it kind of some, some processes in like even mentally to say, oh, this I know I should not be doing now because of that. So I think over time, if you invest enough on it, and it's maybe not obvious in the beginning, mm -hmm. you do find a way to find yourself in the right direction and avoid some of the traits we have because indeed they are there. So yeah. you told me that you read a lot. Yes. So what, what kind of uh, books do you read? Oh, uh, I always read at least two or three books at the same time, and they tend to be very different. Mm -hmm. So one is always about history. So I always have something in my background about something which which I like. One that tends to be very business minded. Okay. So it can be something on technology, of banking, or finance, or and one tends to be more diverse. On, on whatever is the thing that uh, either because a friend gave me a good you know, Roman, Roman, a science fiction novel to read. So it tends to be these three things I, I kind of okay. work. And it depends on the moment I spend more time on one or the other. Okay. If I feel I have something at work which is keeping me busy, I'll probably try to spend more time reading the business book because it's all probably going to help me. If I feel I need to get my brain more empty or do something then, I'm going to do something which is more, more outside of my day-to-day -day business. Okay, well, what is maybe one of your preferred or, or uh, business books? Ooh. One of the, this one, 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 like top of my mind, had a striking effect for me, actually twofold. Uh, there's two books actually then. Uh, one is called The Innovation Dilemma mm -hmm. from somebody called Clayton Christensen, because it was the first time I read something very scientific that could explain the innovation process. Mm -hmm. if, so if you think it's, it's just you know, inspiration and then all of a sudden you a moment, it's not. It's a process. It's a process. And, and when I read it, it was like, wow, you kind can of industrialize. <laughs> you, can, you can scale it and you can yeah. actually see the signals, the indicators. So 
as I, I am, I'm very analytical and I also am very forward looking, mm -hmm. it was like the perfect combination. And the second one is something, uh, another one called Predictably Irrational from Dan Ariely. So I love behavioral finance. And the book is about all the biases you have that you're more or less conscious about. And, and the book uh, focuses on, on financial services at a wide sense of the term. Mm -hmm. But it's written in a very accessible language with very common, easy to understand language. Um, I give an example of why it's took a call with me. Mm -hmm. like, and I feel like basketball, for instance. The, the common or football can be the same thing. Everybody has this idea, say, who are you going to give the ball to the last minute or score mm -hmm. a penalty? And you always go with the star name of your team. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it could be Eden Hazard from Belgium some years ago, or Michael Jordan in basketball. Mm -hmm. And the common belief is that they succeed more than others. Guess what? Not. They have more opportunities. Yes. I gave you another one, which is the perfect, which my wife is a doctor, just on the story part. And this is one which I love with my wife. Mm -hmm. So you are in a life or death situation. You have to choose between two doctors. A one which has worked for the last 40 hours, but he's like the semi-god of what you have to do. <laughs> the expert of the experts. So the one guy that, like, you know, there's the Uber of, of doctors. Yeah. And then you have the, the young practitioner that went to a nice school, but not exactly the same, but the guy is rested. It didn't work. Who do you choose? And it's you, like, different, that kind of thing. Everybody, and it's the same question to my wife. You go with the Uber god. Guess what? Figures-wise, the guy is, is at least 35% less effective over time. Mm-hmm. Because he was tired. But common knowledge tends to make, make choices that are not obvious. And what I like in these two books, especially in Practical Irrational, is that it forces you to look at that and to consider that actually things are not exactly what you think they are. Yep. And it forces you, again, and this is with the link with the innovation process, mm -hmm. you think you know things. And we all have that hidden of us saying, and, and I'm good at that, yeah, okay, maybe. And those kind of things get unlocks a different thinking, which I think is very important, especially in tech, because you're supposed to build stuff. But then, okay, are you doing the right thing? Did you ask the right questions? Mm -hmm. Are you taking for granted something that, you know, it's common knowledge and actually seems not to be the case. So that, that was very refreshing, uh, two readings I would, I would recommend to anybody. Okay. You have two children. Yes. Together with your lovely wife, mm -hmm. the doctor. Yes. And they're 12 and 14 years old. You have shared, what, what are the core values that you're passing on to your children? What are the core values that you live by yourself? What I try, I try to create an environment where they can be who they, they want to be, so the best version of themselves. Mm -hmm. And that they feel that whatever they want to do tomorrow, uh, they can be. So there is no profession they should have or not profession to do. But there are two things which are super important. Don't take anything for granted. Mm -hmm. So you need to be cognizant of how lucky you are to live in certain environment and to work for it. And that's very important. Uh, so instill this culture of you have to work hard to what you want to get. And there's nothing easy. Mm -hmm. So nothing is created for you. And the second, which is you need to be mindful of the impact you have around others, mm -hmm. which is this idea of doing the right thing. The way you behave, the way you express yourself with your colleagues, with your teachers, with the environment around you shapes the world. And you cannot decide that that's the best way to engage because, again, like it's always this question about how can I be impactful? I'm just a small piece of the large universe and I'm a grain of sand or whatever. But it starts with you. Mm -hmm. And it starts with the very engaged. You can either, from the start, begin to be a nice person, helpful, mindful of others, and that will have a positive impact on you or, or not. So I try them, even at early, to understand the difference between the two and to push behavior 
the Tehrekin in Passover, because I believe that will just pass on, and when they grow older, they become working adults. That's the one of the kind of thing they behave. Be mindful of who they are, and be proud of what they want to be, whatever they want to be, and that you need to work hard for that. Nothing will end. Be sure that you think about impacting to having years in society. Yeah. In your life, were there important mentors, people that you or people that you look up to, that you learn from? Could you mention one? It's it's a combination of of of, of people I worked for or with and, and events. I I, will have, I believe a lot in anecdotes or, or like tipping moments that kind of stay with you forever, mm-hmm. and and over time and and. Uh, you, you, you will always retell stories about who they are o- over time. So the people like that also. I, my grandfather was one of those persons for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I worked with somebody in BNP Paribas, uh, Francisca de Cooper, that was one of the, that, like in a different domain. Mm-hmm. People that encouraged me to be a better version of myself and to feel comfortable. And what, one of the things, for instance, I liked on that, so my grandfather was a great storyteller. And, and there was a story he told when he met my wife, again, my wife, that there's a funny event. So we, I'm, we met when I was well, you know, relatively old, and he would tell the story every year, or I would be afraid of clowns. Like, for whatever reason, he loved just telling that to my wife that you may see him as a grown-up boy, whatever it is he does, but you know what? In the end, he's afraid of clowns. <laughs> and the funny thing that every year I got older in the story. So when I met, oh, he was 12 and he was afraid of clowns. Last time he told it, I was 17, and I was afraid of clowns. And he knew he was making up the story every time, mm-hmm. And my wife was just amused by it, but it was like, why is he telling me? Like, you were like, it was 19, I think, the last time, and he was 17. So even two years ago, he was afraid of clowns. And what I retain of that story is, is the story itself, not important, is the process to communicate and to show affection for people. And that's, the, the, the people I retain are the ones that allowed me to be what I am and encourage me mm-hmm. to push and to say, you know what? It's okay to be you. It's okay to find a space to go but you have to learn in the process yeah. and that's what i try to do today and it's difficult when you have a opinionated commander style because you think you know <laughs> and your natural tendency is to say no i've done that so is try allow a space where people can, can make their own mistakes and, and find a way to be themselves and that's that's challenging especially in the corporate environment let's talk a little bit about i mean you're clearly very very successful in what you do but we all make our mistakes we all have our failures mm-hmm. and and they're they're good as long as we learn from them so could you maybe share with us what was one of your most brilliant failures and, and what oh. happened and what, what did you learn from it? Oh, one of my, my I, have, I, have, I have a few. I've tried not to make the same twice, mm-hmm. but I do have a few. So one of the most more visible one was years ago, like, like literally this prescription was, I didn't work in financial services. So I worked for a very large uh, media company mm-hmm. and our business was to sell advertising locally. So in small cities around the country, we would sell advertising. And it was the it was kind of beginning of internet era. So paper business, classical classified thing, you would read in newspaper, and, and my job was to make it digital. Okay. So I, I thought I had this amazing idea where I was going to invent a product where you sell it on physical paper, you press a button, generate something online, and it works. And I built a very end-to-end, super integrated industrial solution from mm-hmm. printing process to online click. Every, and I thought about end-to-end, like the industrial process, the selling process, the commissioning, everything. I thought it was amazing. Mm-hmm. The only thing I forgot to ask was would people pay, pay for that, <laughs> stupidly. So we invested like two years of that project for that company. It was a huge investment. It was super smart, so sophisticated idea. But we did no client testing, no market feedback. And I remember like when we were going ready to go live, 
we took the best sales guy, the one that could sell anything, which I never talked with him. And I pitched him the idea. And he was like, this is just ridiculous. <laughs> and I was like, why? And then I was like, no, I'm going to tell you. And then it took me like a day of, of his journey, like trying to sell. And people were like, what? And we were selling to local merchants. You know, now, well, imagine now a butcher oh. of, in 1999, 2000. Yeah. The guys were not even aware of what internet was. And like, but like, why would I? And the guy was like, you see, like why your idea is, is so, so stupid. So we, we, we had invested millions of euros. It went live. For months, we didn't sell one, one single, like not, nothing. It was like zero. So we decided to kill the product. Mm -hmm. Literally, the week we decided to kill the product, we sell it in a forgotten village somewhere. So a guy buys three. I said, no, guys, we're going to kill it. So we had to reimburse him. So and, and it, I, I was not fired. And it was like, towards the end of my life. But I was so sure my idea was amazing mm -hmm. because it was super elegant. Super, and, and everybody working on it was, loved it because we built something super complex that worked. End-to-end, yeah. -end, everything was automated. You pressed the button. Like it, was, it seemed impossible to do and we've done it. We just had forgotten there was no market for that. <laughs> and nobody was willing to pay, which seems obvious now with, with, with insight. But every time now I do something very complex, every time, I have this thing that goes on and say, hey, but do I know? Or do I mm -hmm. understand? Who is the thing I'm going to uh, to build? And for instance, now now when when I think so, I, when I joined Euroclear, uh, I was working with with somebody called Frederick Anacard, which is now left the company. One of the things that Frederick told me in the beginning was, if you think it's stupid, you should not do it. <laughs> Good advice. But I, but I'm in IT, so my job is to execute and work with my colleagues. And he was yeah. like, yeah, whatever. But in the end, you are also accountable that you do the right thing for the company. So if you're not convinced of the idea. I, it's, it's, I will hold you accountable because I can, I can mourn with the other guys and I will do that. But you are also part of the process to ensure you do the right thing. So you should feel empowered to say, if that idea doesn't make sense, raise it. And I was like, oh, this is actually pretty cool because it has a twofold effect. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I did feel more accountable and I felt the trust saying, oh, I'm entitled, even if I'm new, to make choices, but also feel empowered to say to go to my colleagues, guys, no. I, did, I didn't get the point. Can you please explain it again? Because... I would feel more comfortable if I understand what we're going to do. And very often it was the case, but it also led to a different kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. And that, that stuck with me because of that, like my magical uh, failure, where I'd wasted millions of years for the company. And then all of a sudden, yeah, there was no market for that. Okay. Now, Antonio, you, you're clearly very, very driven in your work and, 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 and your life as well. And so outside of work, what is it that really drives you? What is that? What are the passions? Besides reading uh, in your life? So what, what drives me, the things that, no, no, for which I wake up mm -hmm. and I have, have, have energy, is the idea that I can make a difference in what I do. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and work is a big part where we spend all of our lives. So cho choosing a job and a company where you are allowed to combine two, for me, it's one of the most important things that I, I, I've, I've done and continue to do, is trying to combine these two things. I want to help the world to be better mm -hmm. and to have positive input on what you do. Again, without the complexity, it means what, what you have to choose yep. on a daily basis. That's one of the things that like pushes me to do things. Okay. <coughs> Outside of work, I, I like to spend time. Uh, food is one of my favorite things. Okay. So we have a joint uh, interest there. Uh, either cooking or eating or going places. So it's one of the things I, I, I enjoy because I like the fact of practicing and, the, and the, what eating represents. It's the moment you sit and you discuss and engage with people, yeah. your family, your friends, your colleagues. And I think it creates a conversation which are very, very specific to the fact that, I, it's, like in Belgium, everybody has a favorite beer or 
a friterie, which pushing comes everywhere. Everywhere is world preferred one. That's the of best course. one everywhere. The French have that with cheese. So every country has its own twink. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things I like because it's a, it's a segue to have a conversation to get like to get people to know a bit better and the environment you work around. So one of the things I like is trying to understand that and the nuances and the variation because it just just triggers everybody. Like, which is the best chocolate? And everybody's an opinion. Like of course, there's only one which is the best one. And I love because mm -hmm. I find it's a way like, like a, a window to the soul of somebody. Mm -hmm. and you start with something which sounds relatively neutral, and then you can try to you understand better. But and I, I like that. I, mean, I like to spend time trying to understand because it's part of what I am. If you look back on your professional life, but maybe also on your on your uh, personal life, what is the best thing that has ever happened to you? Oh, my wife and my kids. Mm -hmm. That's that would be. Um, it's probably a different way to answer your question regarding fears. Uh, well, when I was growing up, there was like and again the three things that you needed to to do to have a successful life. Mm -hmm. uh, plant a tree. <laughs> plant a tree. Uh, have kids, mm -hmm. choose a job where we have an impact, or write a book. That was like optionality on the, on the, on the third one. Because I think that's something which is very um, related to family and background. This idea that you are like passing by mm -hmm. in the world, but what are the ways we have to engage and to have an impact on the rest? Well, your kids is a way for you to continue to part of what you are and what your family is. The tree tends to be forever, mm -hmm. or last at least a long time. Yep. And the tree reproduces, the tree gives trees. And a book or work is a different way to have a legacy because you never know who is going to read your book. Okay. To the same extent, I was influenced by something that I read years ago. Very often, we have either a book or an event or something that kind of like makes a tipping point. So you're going to write a book then? It's one of the things I have in mind to do. Okay. Uh, it, it's it's a question of either being lazy or busy, or, or because it's I think it's it's an argument I can make. It's one of the things I've not done yet. Uh, would it be fiction or a business book or a history book or? I have not made my mind around that okay. yet. It could be either. Actually, I, 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 when I was young, I wrote poetry, which okay. now seems very far away from what I do. Uh, I don't know if we'll come back to that, but the book will be somewhere in my to do some later on, I'm, I'm sure. Okay. So, Antonio, last question. Thank you for your time and for uh, coming over to our uh, office here. So. These videos are watched by uh, uh, very ambitious young professionals that want to follow in your footsteps and, uh, and that want to uh, become a chief digital officer of big finance organization. So what is the advice that you would give to these uh, professionals? Oh, three things. Mm -hmm. First of all, be sure that's what you want. The, when you're younger and you're trying to make your career path, you only see the positive aspects or the, what you think being the glamour part of your job. The more you're going to have responsibility, you're going to make difficult decisions as you go along. You will have to fire people you like. Mm -hmm. You'll have to go to places you do not like. You are going to have to miss family moments for which you will not be there. And that comes with your job. I mean, we all try to find the right balance between work and, and life, and that's doable. But the more you are going to have things to be accountable for, the more these things are going to be imposed on you and you have less opportunity. Success comes with a price. It comes with a price, but very often when you're younger, you don't realize it right away. I give you an example that everybody thinks like traveling is a very good example. When mm -hmm. I was younger, I loved the idea of travel. Mm -hmm. I, I would go somewhere. And then I realized what I do, I go to an airport, I go to the hotel, <laughs> I go to my office, and I come back. I see restaurants, yes I do. That's a cool part of that. But very often, and there are Americans where I've seen the airport, the hotel, the office, 
and the restaurant. Yeah. So over time, you realize, yet there is still some fun into it, but way less. And less with gamma. So the, my, my first advice would be, be mindful that's what you want to do for you and understand the balance you want to have or not. And sometimes you say, actually, it's not for me. It's not right. It doesn't make sense. No. And there are some countries where this is more obvious than others. I think that's my first advice would be, be sure that's what you're aiming for. The second one is be ready to work hard and that paths are way less linear than before. The world has changed. Companies, environments, skills are changing all the time. A conversation on the cloud is perfect for that. It was a non-thing some years ago. Now it's mandatory. So you need to be ready to put up the time to mm -hmm. learn continuously. Because it's not because you have done a very nice engineering school or business school or whatever you have started. That doesn't work anymore. You need to be ready to continue to invest in your skills, your craft, who you are. Yep. And again, that comes with a price, as you said. So... Be sure that you want that. Be sure to invest. The third one is be good. And that's coming back to my, my own question. I think what you want to be and the way you behave will have an impact on your career. Mm -hmm. And when you're younger, you kind of hesitate. What version of me I want to show? I think choosing that will have an impact positive in your career. And it's actually, because that's also linked with the book you asked me. I read a book on that by Adam Grant that actually makes the point that people that tend to behave like that are more successful overall than the rest. So my advice would also be that, be consciously good with others. Okay. And on that note, Antonio, thank you so much uh, for your time. And as a small token of our appreciation, uh, this is the CRNet cookbook full of recipes for digital success and a, nice, a couple of nice cooking recipes in there as well. Thank you. We can read for that. Thank you.